Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. This is Season 3, Episode 8. Today I'm talking to Claudia Carter with the California Wheat Commission. I had a lot of questions for Claudia, and I'm very interested in wheat. I've actually worked in um, the wheat area of the Pacific Northwest, and I, I got to spend a lot of time around wheat farmers, and it gave me a big interest on the topic. We've even grown my own wheat in the backyard here in California over the past several years and use it to bake bread for my family. And I'm very fascinated about the wheat industry here in California, and I think you should be too. Um, it's very important, and um, the wheat industry, um, the way that they uh, do the wheat farming is very fascinating. And Claudia had a lot of answers to my questions. So without further ado, we're going to go right to it. So here's Claudia Carter from the California Wheat Commission. Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian podcast. My name is Dean Jones, the Well-Seasoned Librarian. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Claudia Carter from the California Wheat Commission. Claudia, thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's, it's my pleasure. So yeah, I'm happy to share whatever I can share about what we do here. Now, um, what can you tell us about yourself and how you came to get a BA in food science and an MS in cereal science? Um, yeah, so I'm originally from Ecuador, um, a small country right on the equator, South American country. Um, and after I graduated from high school, I went to Buenos Aires, Argentina, where I lived there for about three years and I studied food engineering. So my passion in food has been for a long time. I grew up, you know, most of the time having, you know, family cooking, my grandma, my mom. From, from my grandma from both sides. And, and then since I'm little, my mom would say that I'll take a stool and, and at five years old, I'll be baking something. Um, so that has been in me since then. Uh, I appreciated our cultural background and the food that we have. I love traditional Ecuadorian food. I wish I can find it more here. So the passion related to food uh, started since I'm little and cooking and sometimes making my own things because I couldn't find them anywhere else. And then I decided to study food engineering. Uh, there are two reasons for that. My dad wanted me to study chemical engineer, but I didn't think that was a field that was of my interest. So I kind of compromised saying, hey, I like food and I like engineering. Um, I really like physics and math at that time. But um, food engineering was a, a area that was not definitely uh, available or was well known back in the, you know, in, in the 2000s or so when I graduated. So that was brand new and, and Ecuador didn't have that many universities with that. So Argentina, I always saw Argentina as having a very strong uh, food manufacturing background. So I moved there because I thought, well, you know, it seems that they know what they're doing. They have a pretty solid manufacturing uh, industry in the food. And then, yeah, so I started my, my, my kind of food training there, but I wasn't there long enough to tell you exactly how, how they work because I, I just study, I didn't really work. Um, and then I decided that I wanted to actually do my, my undergraduate at the, at, the, at the same time with English. So I moved here to the US in 2007 and studied English uh, at a university uh, for a little bit. And then I went to North Dakota State University where I transferred all my credits and they thankfully accepted me all the two years almost that I did uh, for actual schools from Argentina. Uh, 
it took quite a bit of physics and math, uh, a lot more than it was needed for a food science. Um, and then it was a surprise to me that in the US, they don't really have a food science as an undergraduate. It's like you do, a, I'm sorry, a food engineering, you do a food science, and then a food engineering was more like, oh, you can continue with your master's. So that was to me interesting that I couldn't become a food engineer. And so I'll say I took that route because that was the only route I had. Um, and, and then, yeah, then I became, you know, a mother of my first child as I was finishing my undergraduate. And, and then I had my second child before I decided to, I wanted to go to do my master's. I always want, I, I love education. So I really wanted to continue, even though I was a mom of two by that time. And yeah, and, and North Dakota State University is, it was my, you know, university where we lived in Fargo was really an easy transition to me. Uh, one of the things that I always talk about how education was really easy being a mom is because my professor, my advisor, advisor Dr. Frank Manti, uh, gave me the opportunity to work for him, knowing that I was pregnant. And also I got, I earned an assistantship through that university um, and allowed me to, to really study while I was, you know, being a mom, uh, almost a mom of two at that time. So that I ended up basically taking the hard route first because I was working as a food technologist and then I was doing my master's and that if you do that at a university as an employee, it will take you years to finish. So I, right. I thought, no, I want to basically concentrate on finishing my master's. So I quit my job with Dr. Manti, who was my advisor at that time too, and then ended up my master's and I finished in 2014. So, yeah. Can you tell us about your role in the California Wheat Commission? Yeah, um, here at the California Wheat Commission in 2014, I started as the lab director. Uh, so California Wheat Commission is a wheat commission among 17 other state wheat commissions. Uh, and then we're the only wheat commission in the, in the United States that have a wheat lab on site. Most of the wheat quality research that happens, happens outside of, of you know, at a university level. And so that's the reason why I was hired originally. And in 2016, my boss at that time, Janice Cooper, she left and went to take another position in Portland, Oregon. And my board basically told me and say, hey, you know, this position is available. Will you, you know, will you like to apply? Will you be interested? So I was, I, I didn't have any background whatsoever for the executive director position. And then I was hired. Um, in 2016, and I, I still am learning. It's, it's a completely different role. Um, because I'm a scientist, my mind works in a different way than a business and administrator person. Right. Um, and I, I would consider myself a good marketing person, but definitely finance-wise, uh, I learn enough. I, I develop budgets. I, I present that every year to my board. Um, I, I understand the basics of we cannot spend more than what we have, right? Those are basic uh, finance. And we have been able to maintain our, you know, what we make. So how, how the California Wheat Commission works is we get all most of our funding through a checkoff program. That is uh, meaning the, the, the farmer, the California wheat producer in California gets, um, gets to pay uh, an assessment fee. And that currently is $1.50 per ton. 
And then the commission um, gets us funds through the handler or elevator. And then without funding, then we, we have a mission to be able to um, disperse those funds to meet our mission, which is uh, research, market development, outreach, and education. So, and that is done through different outlets, but then the board decides what they would like to do with that money and where they would like to put it in and what their priorities are. So, so my role here is to basically make sure that uh, that is taken care of. Um, I do a lot of, you know, um, networking, uh, talking to farmers, talking to business people, talking to researchers. So it's a really interesting position because you get exposed to, to interacting with a variety of people from different positions that communicate in very different ways. So you have to learn how to communicate with a farmer that is different than communicating with the CEO of a big milling company, right? Right. And I've learned to do that. I think versatile, like I'm very versatile. I, I, I travel a lot and I think that allowed me to communicate with people from different backgrounds in the way that will be understandable. So I think that has allowed me to do my job a little bit better, I will, I will say. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Now, can you tell us about some of the things that the California Wheat Commission does? Um, yeah, we do a lot of things. So for research specifically, uh, we provide funding to UC Davis. So we have a breeder called, uh, his name is Jorge Dukowski. And then also we have an agronomist, a small uh, grain specialist, who is Dr. Uh, Mark Lundy. So what those two, uh, you know, those two activities are for is Jorge uh, develops the lines, the new breeding lines that are suitable and adapt adaptable for California weather that are improved in quality, improved in, you know, in, in overall agronomics, but also in disease resistance packages. Uh, and then Mark Lundy, he is the, the one that does test trials. So he puts those varieties across the state to make sure that they perform well in different environments. Um, and then uh, part of research also, we do testing here at our, at our lab for quality. So we get all those lines from them and then we analyze them for, you know, milling, flour quality, baking, pasta, tortillas. So that's our job here as part of the research. Then for market development and outreach, uh, the, the activities are various, they vary. Um, you know, we, we go to conferences and meetings, we do training. Um, our lab here is a, a lab service. So we do a fee for service to industry. So not only for farmers, but for breeding companies, for millers, for food manufacturers. And uh, the service that we offer here to them is it, it really varies depending on what they want, but I feel like we have found our own kind of niche of, okay, so we are pretty much, I would say, experts on wheat flour quality, um, sourcing like variety specific blends of varieties, and also I would say experts on the product application. So how does a specific flour behaves in a tortilla? What happens if we change the flour, but not only that, what happens if we, we change an ingredient? So we have been doing more of our research and development, but also um, that comes with training. So we do quite a bit of training to companies that want to understand more their supplier, what they're speaking and their language. The supplier want to say the flower supplier so they can communicate better to them. Um, so then 
we do the education and outreach that's related to a project. I would say more related now to a project that we're working with schools um, is, and, and then to the public and talking about the benefits of eating whole grains and in the specific, specific terms, whole wheat. Um, I think that's pr probably, you know, we can do, we can concentrate and do a lot more things, but it's easier for us to, to concentrate on two or three things and do those well, uh, rather than doing a little bit here and there in pieces and pretend that we're doing something right. So my philosophy is like, we concentrate on, on these aspects and uh, I'll rather have us being the entity that people sees and seeks as being the experts on that because we have done so much of it. So that's the things that I've just, to just told you are, I'll say the things that we are more of the experts and developing recipes for specifically whole wheat. We have done a lot of work and I can say that we have done an, an amazing job to do that. Um, so yeah. Now I come from an area, I've, I've lived in the Pacific Northwest and uh, Midwest and I was in areas where they had like more four seasons, you know, winter, spring, summer, fall. California has a very different um, bioregion. What are some of the challenges that farmers face growing wheat out here in California? Um, so, so to kind of go along your first comment, yeah, absolutely. I, I lived in and understood, uh, you know, how wheat was grown in North Dakota, very different uh, weather. And I understand a little bit how also wheat is grown in, you know, in Kansas, for example, in that region. And yeah, we're very different even though we're in the West side than even Oregon and, and Idaho and, um, um, and Washington. So because we are more like a Mediterranean, really dry weather, uh, we don't have the moisture that actually in general plays in our advantage because uh, a lot of the diseases that are related to wheat, they thrive in humidity and in high moisture. So in general, because wheat was originally and came from very much dry desert areas, this climate is just perfect for wheat growing. Um, so that's why you also hear uh, the areas on the desert and certain varieties that be have become very much um, famous or more like predominantly grown for the artisanal bakers like Sonora uh, because those were adapted and were grown predominantly in the Sonora and the desert down in Mexico, right? right. And then came up here and then did very well. Um, so with that being said, I think that that's definitely different, but total advantage to us. Um, the one downside of that is that we have drought years and sometimes the drought years get prolonged to two, three, four, five years, right? Right. So that in general plays in our, against us because there are a couple of things related to that. I'll say uh, growers in California, they are no, essentially, they're not wheat farmers. They are spinach lettuce farmers, tomato farmers, pistachio. I mean, they farm other products that are what will be considered higher value crops. Weed is just kind of like, it's a rotational crop and they utilize it to break the disease cycle. And they have been doing that for many years. So what people don't understand in general is that California farmers will 
ever, never probably do a monocrop where they just grow wheat and wheat. That's just never going to happen. Right. So they use wheat as a tool, as part of their toolkit to make sure that their soil can rest, especially after tomatoes, uh, for example, or, or sweet potatoes, for example. And, and, and then that allows them for them to, again, break those disease cycles, but also be able to uptake a lot of nitrogen residues that might be in, on the soil because wheat needs that. So that benefits the crop. Now, with water issues becoming predominantly worse in drought years where the water allocation is restricted to farmers, because wheat is not a money-making crop for, that, for them, they will definitely pull away off from like allowing some of that water go to wheat. So they might grow wheat and plant it, but if they don't have a good rain year that they wanted in general, that would be preferable, they might irrigate once, but they will rarely irrigate twice or three times. So that plays against us because then like last year, we had a great crop planting year, but because of the drought, quite a bit of those, of those fields were abandoned or they were just chop to what it was able to grow. And at that point, the commission doesn't get any funding uh, if it gets green chop. We only get funding if it goes for grain, uh, absolutely harvested for grain. Um, so you can see that also there is a new water management called SIGMA. It's called, um, it stands for like sustainable water management uh, that up to maybe a million to a million and a half of acres need to be, uh, farmers need to put them away from, uh, from like, let's say they have almond trees there, they have to pull them away from production. And we have talked that that might be an advantage to us because those, the ground left there could be used for winter crops that are more drought tolerant. And in general, wheat needs less water than an almond tree, for example. Oh yeah, right. So, so there are things that we, we keep our hopes high because California production, uh, wheat production has been declining drastically over the years. And, and that's a combination of prices of wheat being very low to a combination to more trees, uh, like not trees going into the ground. What are some of the types of wheat that are grown predominantly in California? Uh, we Genetically speaking, we grow uh, hard red spring wheat. That's the number one. Uh, the second most important crop will be durum wheat. And then we also produce soft white wheat up in the northern side of California, so in the Tule Lake region. And we do have some hard white wheat. So um, the hard red spring wheat about, we used to be that maybe 70, 80% used to be produced for human consumption. Now only maybe 20, 30% of that goes for human consumption and the rest goes for animal feed. Durum wheat, if it's planted, 90 to 100% of that crop of durum is going to go for the milling industry. Uh, we have a, a trademark called Desert Durum that is highly value, value to uh, Italian pasta manufacturers. So since the 1990s, pasta companies such as Barilla or the Checo have been contracting with farmers to ahead of, ahead of a crop year actually, and set by a specific price, which usually is higher than your normal durum. And then they pick variety specific and then they grow those. So then we export that to Italy. And the reason why we do that is because our 
weather is so consistently dry that they can actually babysit that crop very well, apply nitrogen when it needs it, apply water when it needs it, and then get a beautiful high quality crop without any problems. So if they have crop from other, other years or other areas that produce durum, that is variable every year because it's mostly dry land durum, then they can blend it. And then by blending it, they can keep the quality and consistency at the level that they um, that they're used to for their pasta products. Now, I've been reading a lot about specialty wheats lately. What are these and um, how do they fit into our market? Um, I would say specialty wheats. Uh, I think we should always start by a definition. What are specialty wheats? And I think if you ask uh, anybody, if, I mean, any person in a room, everybody will give you a different uh, explanation. So it's hard for me to tell you what that specifically means because it will confuse people and there's not by not having a clear definition in the marketplace. I would say in general, maybe, uh, and this is just my guess, people think that specialty wheats are older varieties of wheat, uh, like Sonora, which you hear it a lot, like Yacor Rojo, you also hear that a lot. Um, and, and maybe that's what they mean with the specialty wheats that are different than your conventional, more what they will call modern varieties. Uh, in the marketplace, I think like anything, if a person who considers that as being a premium product, I think they're going to be taking that as a marketing term and, you know, price it higher. Now, I would think that weed itself, any weed, older, modern, specialty weeds, heritage varieties are are, you know, are a seed that has a lot of great stuff inside of them. So to me, if someone is taking that name or a specific variety, calling a specialty weed for marketing purposes, but they're not conscious and mindful about the product they're making out of that, that they're going to eventually promote and maybe market at higher in price, and they're, and they're putting out in the market something that is still not highly nutritious and is more nutrient dense to what you in general see in, in, in an American diet, then I will say that's irresponsible marketing because then they are marketing something just for a name. Now, if they're calling specialty weed and keeping that seed intact, what I say with that, the whole grain, the germ, the bran, and making a product that is significantly higher in quality and also nutrition quality, then I'll say maybe, maybe that, that might be an okay reason to do that. But you always have to explain to your consumer why that product being a special, of course, made of a specialty weed, it's better than something else. Now, that is definitely some for debate and people might disagree, but um, I, I, you know, it's related to the term specialty, specialty weeds that it's, I think, important to, to define, and it's important to be responsible in how people are defining it and using it for marketing purposes. Right. So um, the California Wheat Commission has a new school program where you built a grain mill at a local school. Can we talk about that a little bit? Um, yeah, so back in 2000, 
about three, four years ago, I guess, um, I'll say I had Alison Bright Rose, which is a, a volunteer at one of our local schools here in Woodland, coming and, and saying, hey, you know, we're growing weight this year and we don't know what to do with it. Will you help us? So that was the first year I, I got exposed to a week to school program, thanks to her. And thanks to Chuck Buckingham, who is the volunteer who actually grows the weed at that field. Um, and, and we partnered that first year and I said, yeah, we can do this, we can do that. And I gave her a few ideas and we came down that, okay, the class who's actually doing observational studies and studying math and science with the field as it's growing and taking care of it, learning about watering, learning about nutrients, they should also be the, the, the class that will come to the lab, which they came. And we help them harvest that year, that crop with the kids. We use handmade tools. They, they, you know, they saw how it went from the dry stock to get the grain and then came here. Uh, they mill it with us. And then we tested all the different machines that we use here for quality. So they can get exposed to, hey, what does a, what does a food scientist does at a lab or a cereal scientist? And then we made the product. So we made pasta, tortillas, bread and cookies and all of that with their flour that was 100% whole wheat. Um, and that was the first time that I saw a whole class that was exposed to something brand new and they were just, wow, this is amazing. But to me, the most important part of it was when all the children uh, actually, you know, say unanimously that this was the best tortilla they have ever tried. And thinking that, keep in mind that that class, about 80% of that, I, I would say the school demographics are Mexican-American that probably most, most likely they have only had a white uh, flour tortilla. Um, it got me thinking that kids actually do appreciate and like whole wheat products. Why is it that some people and some experts in this field say that kids don't accept it. And that's why they blend it usually 50-50 or 20-80, making a more refined flour. And then I started being very interested in the nutrition part and learning about just, just like, what is the dietary guidelines tell us to eat? How, many, how much whole grains? And then the new dietary guideline came that basically they say, and they put for the first time a par that people should be eating a lot of fruits and vegetables, which they always tell you that, but a part they put whole grains and say, and also whole grains, which usually they don't do that. Like they say equally people should be eating this much and high amounts. And then you look at the numbers on the consumption of whole grains in general in the population, in the U.S. population is way below than what the dietary guidelines tells you to eat. And in children, it's even worse. Now you think that whole grains, there are a lot of things out there, whole grains, right? But if you think a normal, no normal, like a diet at a home in the US, most of the time probably they'll have things that are made with flour. So I did grow up eating rice. So that's one another grain, but I will doubt that a lot of families can afford quinoa. In Ecuador it's very cheap, but here it's not. So that's a whole grain that gets promoted often or bulgur, you know, there are a lot of whole grains that are promoted. And, but if you're going to buy it, it's actually expensive. So a person that can afford a, you know, a lower cost food, most of those products are actually made with flour. And if those products, and also taking into consideration the whole package, because when we talk about product that is made nutritiously speaking, 
we should talk about the sugar content, the fat content, the sodium content, and so forth. But if we do maintain those levels that at a level that it's reasonable, not high, with the whole grain flour, 100%, more people will probably can make those targets, most people. So that's kind of my, um, my whole kind of like in, interest in the nutrition, children, and working with schools. So this grant that it was put out there by CDFA, I saw it as a great opportunity to expand the program and to be able to expose more children to whole grain, 100% whole wheat flour products in general. So we applied for the grant, we got it, uh, and then it's the farm to school grant. And we got about $145,000. And the idea is that in order for a school to be truly farm to school, farm to school in wheat, in grains, it's, it's very difficult. That's, that's the problem. Uh, because a grain, you cannot just pick it from a garden and eat it like a tomato. Right. And that's most of the product projects that are farm to school, it's all about fruits and vegetables and maybe milk and maybe beef, but you rarely hear like a grain. In fact, we got an USDA, um, there's a national month of farm to school coming up in October. And I just got an email from one of our partners at a school, the food service manager, that received an email from a USDA, the National Farm to School program saying, hey, you know, we have heard about fish to school and we have heard about fruits and vegetable gardens, but this is the very first time I've heard about a week to school, which is what we're calling it. So the program itself, it's really, it really seems to be complicated because this will be not probably sustainable at a pretty large school, but the idea is there and we wanna pilot it. And it's basically, how can we have the schools to partner with farmers? Well, the schools will need a mill because how can, this, how, how can a farmer find a mill that can produce a small, a small quantities for the, it's, it's going to be impossible. We, we figured that out. Um, and then the school needs to have people who gets trained on how to use this flour. So that's what we're doing, we're training them. And we're developing the recipes. So we're doing recipes that are going to be easy, easy to implement that they can make a thousand servings at a day uh, of pizza, uh, tortillas, pasta, and bread rolls. So those are the four products we're aiming. Because we're purchasing, they're purchasing the wheat from the farmer. We took every wheat that they're going to be selling to them and developed the recipes tailored for that specific wheat. The wow. reason why we did that is because if you don't do that, they're going to fail, okay? Because right. wheat is not your typical wheat that you find in a market. So we have, I will say, successfully speak, speaking anecdotes here from ours, from our interns, from the people around here that we have made them try. The pasta that we made yesterday too, that I gave to some children, that these products are extremely amazing, that are incredible. So the next test to us is make this flour. They receive the mill. They're going to receive the grain. We purchase them the pasta machine so they can make a lot per hour. And we make, we purchase them the tortilla presses so they can make a lot of tortillas per hour. And then we set up a recipe specifically for the bread and pizza that it's going to be put your ingredients, mix the dough, let it see for a certain time, take it out, put it in a pan, put it in the oven. So all these things have been happening this whole time since we have been working with this. Uh, 
also we're creating lesson plans for the teachers so they can grow the grains. We're going to be growing a whole year with the, with the grains. They're going to be learning about how to grow it, what's happening. It's going to be about, you know, act in the classroom. And then with that, the children should be able to appreciate, we hope, the whole idea of whole grains. So because this is such an incredible project and I got so much interest in, in nutrition, I started my PhD just in January, which I'm incorporating and I'm going to be documenting and taking data for me to utilize it as part of my PhD. Um, I would love to create this project as being shared with the world. So if anybody else out in the world in other places or in the US wants to have it and use it, they can find the recipes that could easily be adapted and just taking it for their weeds. We are sharing videos that are educational. We're sharing videos that are part of the recipes too. And then where we'll be sharing, you know, everything we have learned for a year and a half, two years that we're doing this project. That sounds wonderful. I think it's really important for young people to know where food comes from, because I think when, when I was young, I think food was just something magical you purchased in the store. I don't think much of us were very cognizant of where anything came from. And I think I see a lot of programs like yours that are really trying to get young people to realize that they can, they can affect you know, this change and they could like eat foods that are healthier and they could like have choices. And I, I just, I love seeing this program. It's just really amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. Now, do you do yourself, do you yourself do much baking and does this inform some of your instruction and some of the things you work with? Um, I myself, I consider the, that I, I am a much better pasta maker. That's one of my areas. I work with that. I understand that better. But I have been growing up baking at home. But when I say baking, I talk more about like cakes and pastries, uh, not so much actually bread. I, in Ecuador, a tradition to bake bread at home, it's, it's, it's non-existent, basically, because we grew up with bakeries being literally in every other corner of our houses. So you know exactly where to find fresh bread at six in the morning and also 6 p.m. because they're always available. Now that bread, of course, is your typical sweet bread, um, you know, and bread that it's it's just all white flour and starch, but that's, but we will eat that, you know, interesting enough, in Ecuador, we don't eat bread as our daily daily bread. Right. Our daily bread is actually rice. So for, for us, for me, that was not traditionally what I grew up cooking and baking. It was more uh, you know, about baking desserts, like baking that, baking the pastries. So that definitely, so when people ask me, and I understand the science, I can tell you all about what happens with the flour and if the quality is this high or lower, I'll tell you, okay, blended. Like I can tell you the technicalities, but when it comes to baking, which I have done, I I don't consider myself a baker at that point. <laughs> now, what do you see for the future of the California Wheat Commission? Oh, um, I I see us continue doing a great job representing our wheat farmers because I I'd say that our farmers in general, I mean the whole U.S produce a really high quality wheat. Uh, we are 
over 50% of our wheat in the US gets exported. And that tells you that overseas and our customers, international customers see our wheat as being uh, high value, right? But what I think we need to do a better job and I feel like our future is in California is to represent our farmers in the food industry with a different angle of nutrition because wheat has been put out there by many people as being the devil. I think it's our responsibility to help people who wants to work with us to make products that are a bit uh, of higher nutritional quality. Okay, yeah, I can, I can pause that. That was my interview with Claudia Carter from the California Wheat Commission. I really enjoyed getting a chance to talk to her and I hope we can have her on the show again. On Friday, we're gonna kind of start Halloween a little bit early as we talk to reoccurring guest Mike Slater and also his associates Thomas Roche and Kurt Komoda about their book, Lovecraft Cocktails, a kind of sequel to the Necronoma Nom 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 that came out last year and has been wildly successful and on the bestseller lists. Uh, Lovecraft Cocktails is a wonderful book that I really had a lot of fun looking through and I think you're gonna love it. It's on sale now on Amazon in, I think at the time that this is airing, so that week you should be able to go ahead and buy it. And you're gonna wanna, if you wanna make fun drinks for your guests on Halloween or just in general. Um, so that's on Friday. It's Mike Slater, Thomas Roche, Kirk Komoda, to talk about their books, Lovecraft Cocktails, which is going to kick off a week after that with a bunch of really wonderful guests for kind of uh, gearing up for Halloween. So tune in then. Until then, happy cooking.